Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible again to Romans chapter 9. This morning we'll be looking at verses 19 through 24, but I'm going to begin reading again at verse 6 so we have the context. And so if you have your Bible or your phone, whatever you like, uh, if you could open up your Bible. I know we put the words up here, but I just encourage you to take, take your Bible, something along that you can be um, listening with, it, with your Bible open as we go through and study God's Word together. Romans chapter 9, Paul is beginning to deal with the issue of uh, is, God, if, is God faithful? And can we trust that God is faithful in light of the Jews uh, rejecting the Messiah and all God's promises to Israel seeming to have collapsed? And uh, Paul's going to answer that question in a couple different ways, a couple different objections that come up and, as in the context of the conversation, and we'll see that this morning. Let's begin at verse 9, verse 6, I'm sorry, of Romans chapter 9. Paul writes, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his, known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. <clears throat> Father, we are in deep need of your Holy Spirit to understand these hard things, and, and uh, we trust that... Uh, the Spirit is, is promised to us and available to us. And so this morning, Lord, I just ask you to give us the ability to, to see and know you and to see the wonder of your mercy towards us and Jesus as we live our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of uh, grumbling and complaining, maybe even loudly, uh, only to find out later that you were completely uh, wrong and had just been acting like an idiot? Uh, the first uh, time, and there's been more times after that than I care to account, recount, but the first time I had this experience, and I remember, I was fourth or fifth grade, 
and it was uh, Christmas time, and each Christmas, our little class would draw names and exchange presents, and the teacher would put up a, a tree in the corner of the room, and before, a few days before the Christmas party, uh, the presents would be placed under that tree, and um, the neat thing was that you um, would see your present there, it would have your name on it, but you didn't know who it was from. Of course, we, we all hoped uh, to get the biggest present, and, uh, and then we tried to guess uh, who our present, uh, what, it might, what it might be, and, and who it would, might be from. Well, that year I had the smallest present, and, uh, and it was perfectly evident exactly what it was. It was, a, it was a pocket knife thinly wrapped in some Christmas paper, and and I was deeply disappointed. I was disappointed because A, I already had a pocket knife, and B, um, I mean, there was no guessing to it at all. And uh, so the fun was gone. And, and during recess, I, I expressed to my friend Scotty Stroven, um, you know, my deep displeasure about, you know, whatever, whichever idiot had done such a lousy job of, of wrapping my present. I mean, good grief, couldn't they just put it in a box of some sort? How much can a cardboard box cost? Um, I mean, they, you know, they could have just well put it in saran wrap and uh, put the title right on it, Pocket Knife for Dale. Uh, I, was, uh, I was in high horse, and uh, it was not my best hour. Uh, but then the day came to open the presents, which I knew was going to be a bit of dilemma, because as I said, you didn't know who the present was from until after you opened it, and then that person would reveal themselves to be the, the giver so that you could express your boundless joy and eternal appreciation. And... Um, that was going to be a bit of a challenge for me. Uh, so I was, I, uh, was willing to do, do, do my best, and, and we opened presents, and I take my little pocket knife, and I open it up, and, and I thought I was doing fairly well, expressing my surprise and, and uh, appreciation. Uh, and then I, uh, so who's this from? And I was absolutely mortified to find out it was from Scotty. Exactly the guy I'd been complaining to all week about whatever idiot had given me this, this present. Um, I felt like a heel. I was a heel. Uh, I was deeply, deeply ashamed. And that's a little how we might feel as we move through Romans chapter 9. Because Romans 9 is a chapter that um, natural man does not like. Natural man inevitably will protest loudly, vociferously. Uh, no natural man reads this doctrine and says, man, I love this. A God who just does whatever he wants to do and... Um, it makes perfect sense to me why he would do things this way. No natural man says that. The, the instinct is to say it's not fair. Uh, the instinct is to say, well, then why does he find fault with us? The instinct is to protest, to grumble, to argue back and talk back to God. Uh, last week, uh, Paul had answered one objection already, uh, the objection of God's fairness, because the, the charge was if God elects Jacob and doesn't elect Esau, so he loves in a saving way Jacob, and he, and, he, and he hates Esau. He turns his face from Esau, even though they're both born at the same uh, time, they're twins, and, and before they'd, either one of them had done anything bad or good, but just so that God's electing purpose might stand, well, that's not fair. And Paul responded to that objection, because you see, the assumption is that God owes every man equally um, the opportunity to be saved, and that's just, that's just not, a true, it's not a true assumption. God has perfect sovereign freedom to, to give mercy to some and to give justice to others, and there's no injustice anywhere in the, in the equation. That's what we talked about last week. 
Now this week we come to another objection that comes right out of the one that Paul just answered. Uh, if God is sovereign and free and, and disposes so that it doesn't depend on man's exertion or will, but on God who elects, if that's how it is, well then why does God find fault with us? That's verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's a perfectly understandable uh, objection. I mean, on the face of it, it's a very logical argument. Think about Pharaoh. Uh, If Pharaoh did what God wanted him to do, in fact, if Pharaoh did what God ordained he would do, why does God still find fault with him? If God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God would be glorified both in the destruction of God's enemies, Pharaoh, and the redemption of his people, Israel, (coughs) shouldn't Pharaoh be congratulated for how well he did his job? Didn't he do exactly what God had determined? So how can God find fault with Pharaoh when Pharaoh did precisely what God said he would do and ordained that he would do? And of course, that argument doesn't just relate to Pharaoh, but to every non-elect sinner. How can God blame people for not believing when he didn't elect them to believe? They were Esau. And after all, who can resist his will? This is why so many people just simply disregard Romans chapter 9. They they flat out reject what Paul is plainly saying here. And this has happened throughout the history of the church. But today you'll find all sorts of people who if you ask them about these things, they'll just, they'll just say, this, this can't be right. And, and the reason they'll say that is because, <laughs> because they're, they're convinced that unless people have the freedom to choose right or wrong, they can't be held responsible for their actions. And, and we all understand that, right? If... if um, You can't hold people responsible for failing to do things they are utterly incapable of doing. For instance, you wouldn't ask your three-year-old to go change the tires on the car and then punish her when she doesn't do it. You've asked her to do something impossible. It would be wrong for you to punish her for failing to do what she could not possibly do in the first place. We understand that principle. And so the objection here, it's just along those lines. And philosophically, it sounds compelling. How can God punish Pharaoh and and Esau, Ishmael, every non-elect sinner, when they were not able to do, they were not able to believe in the sense because God had determined beforehand that they would not believe, they would be lost. And who can resist his will? So it's, a, it's, it's a strong objection. It makes logical sense. Well, Paul responds by asking some questions of his own. First question is, who are you, O man? Second question is, does not God have the right to do as he pleases? Third question is, what if God had merciful ends in view? Let's just... Take Paul, uh, track him as he, as he makes his response. The first question Paul asks is, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Notice, as Paul responds to the question, he doesn't, he doesn't answer the objection 
directly. What he does is he, he responds to the assumption underneath the objection. The objector, the man protesting, assumes that he has a right to call God to account, that he has the right to put God on the docket and to find God guilty of wrongdoing. So he's going to talk back. He's going to let God know what he thinks about it. He's going to show God how unfair this is, how unjust it is. But, but, but Paul challenges that exact assumption. Who are you, O oh man, to grumble and complain to God? Who are you, O oh man, right? Creature of dust, a mist that's here in the morning and gone by noon. Imagine walking into the kitchen and a housefly rebukes you for keeping the house so cold. Or an ant rebukes you for not leaving enough crumbs laying around on the countertop. That would be a surprise, but you would just say, well, who do you think you are? My house. And I'll put the temperature wherever I want to put the temperature. It's my house. Well, that's Paul's argument a million times over. It's God's world. It's God's universe. Who are you, O oh man, ant, housefly, to challenge God concerning how he runs his world? Who are you to answer back? The Greek word here means to grumble or dispute or to make unjustified accusations against God. We can talk to God. We can pray to God. We can make petitions. We can make known our laments. Read the Psalms. We can have very frank conversations with God. But we are way over the line when we take to ourselves the right to make accusations against God. That's what Paul's challenging. Who do you think you are? And it's a, it's a very good question. It, it just forces us to face the fact that God is fundamentally not like us. We are fleeting creatures, literally made out of dust, and He is the eternal God, eternal Creator, who spun billions of galaxies into being with a word. I mean, this is a Job moment for us. Remember when, when Job lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his flocks. He lost his health. He lost everything. He lost his name, his reputation. And, and Job was loudly complaining that God had wronged him, that this was not right. And he demanded a meeting with God so that Job could prove his case, could, that, God, that he could show that, that God was in the wrong and that Job was in the right. When can I meet with God? That's what he says. Well, then God showed up. And God began by saying, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this that's just piping off and he has no idea what he's talking about? And then God eviscerates Job with 77 consecutive questions that Job can't answer. Like, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Who brought, who brought it forth? 
Just question after question after question, and Job has no answers for any of them. And every question pressing the point home that God is God, and Job is not. And so God says in chapter 40, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Is that what's going on here? You, you man who, who speaks words without knowledge, you have no idea what you're talking about, you're going to make me wrong so that, so that you can be in the right. Who do you think you are? And Job repents and dust gnashes and says, I, he just covers his mouth. I did, I did not know what I was talking about. That's Paul's direction here. Who, who are we to grumble, complain against God? Who are we to charge God with wrong? It is it is. It is arrogant to the bone. We, we, you see, we don't have the right, both by virtue of being creatures that exist by his hand and power, and by virtue of being fallen creatures who receive his blessings, though we have rebelled against him. Remember, Paul had just said in Romans chapter 3 that there's no one righteous, not even one, not, not a single one. They've all together turned aside. They've all gone their own way. No one understands. No one does good. No one seeks God. Together they become worthless. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path is ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. That's Paul's indictment of the entire human race taken from Psalm 53. And it's exactly right. I heard a story of the late Dr. Gerstner. He was the mentor of R.C. Sproul. Um, Gerstner was speaking at a conference about the depravity of man. And in, that, in, the, in the context of his uh, lecture, he said, man is a rat. Well, in the Q&A time, uh, someone uh, stood up and angrily protested and insisted that Dr. Gerstner should apologize for making such an outrageous statement as that, that man is a rat. And so um, Gerstner came to the podium and, and he said, I do. The man is quite right. I do apologize to the rats. <laughs> and he said, the reason is because anything that a rat has ever done wrong is because of what man did wrong. We brought about the fall, not the rats. We owe the rats an apology. That's who we are. So who are, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? And we just have to realize we, we're nothing, and we, and we don't have any right to charge God with wrong. You know, that's kind of a popular thing today, to, to spout off to God and just vent your anger to God. And I, I think Paul would just say, uh, and you are who? Who are, who are you? We don't have the right. But when it comes to rights, Paul points out God has every right. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay? Does not God have rights as creator? Does he not have the right to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and, and, he, and he's just pounding home this point. Doesn't God, as creator, have the right to do as God chooses? That's, just, that's the question. Does or does not God have the right to make out of the same lump of clay 
some vessels for noble use and some vessels for common use. Doesn't he have the right to, right, if, he is, if he's working with glass, to, to maybe out of the same molten thing make, make a nice flower vase and an ashtray? Can anybody stand up and say to the artist, what are you doing? Can the ashtray say, what are you doing? No. I mean, doesn't God have the sheer, simple, sovereign right? We're talking about rights. Doesn't God have the right to do with his creation, his creation, as he sees fit? Can anyone say no? And if you do, on what possible basis? Because you know better? You got it all figured out? You can answer the 77 questions? Of course not. The answer has to be, yeah, yeah. God has the right. He's the potter. It is his divine prerogative to do with the clay as he chooses. That's an irrefutable argument, irrefutable statement. Now, once again, while it's logically consistent and irrefutable, we may not find it emotionally satisfying. It should be, right? There should be something within us as creatures that says, what an awesome God. The angels find delight in it, in the godness of God. Sinclair Ferguson pointed out in in his sermon on this text, he says, if God would send every man into, every single man into the eternity of hell, the angels would still sing, just and true, O Lord, are all your ways. And they would be absolutely right. But, praise God, that's not how the story goes. It's not how the story ends. Paul asks us to consider this stunning possibility. What if behind God's dealings with men, there's not just sheer sovereignty, but stunning mercy? What if that's actually behind God's dealings with men? And so Paul asks, what if God, verse 22, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this in order to make the riches of his glory known to the object of of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? What if that's what's going on? You see, in in verse 22 here, Paul, he continues to respond to the objection of verse 19, but but he does so by turning the question around in a sense. Instead of taking up the question, why does God show mercy to some and not to others? That, That was the question that the objector was complaining about. Paul poses the question, why does God allow the wicked to live? Why does he show patience to the objects of destruction? Why, why, does he, why does he let this wicked world just go on and on in atrocity upon atrocity upon atrocity upon atrocity? 
Why doesn't he just shut it down? You see, what, I mean, that maybe we're looking at this from the wrong perspective if we're complaining. Vadi Bachman, I remember, I was at a conference, Desiring God conference back in 2006. And, and, and Vadi says, I often have students come up to me on the college campus and, and they pose this question, how do you reconcile an all-powerful, all-benevolent God with the reality of evil? And, and Vadi said, I, I tell, he says, I tell them, I won't, and, I won't answer that until you ask it correctly. You have to ask it right. Here's how you ask that question properly. You look me straight in the eyes and say, how on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and thought and said yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night? Until you ask the question that way, you don't understand the issue. You show that you believe that some people, uh, that people in and of themselves deserve something other than the wrath of God. You need to flip the script and ask the question correctly. Why is it that we are still here today? Why has he not consumed and devoured each and every one of us? Why does his wrath and judgment tarry? When you ask it that way, you understand the issue. Why is God so patient with this world of wicked men, people who refuse to honor him as God or give thanks to him, Romans 1? Why aren't those who deserve condemnation immediately condemned? Because we deserve to be. We deserve to be. Why does God allow us to enjoy his beautiful creation day after day while we defile it with our sin and our idolatry? Why does God give us, give us the good gifts of rain and, and sunshine and health, work, so that we can use those gifts in rebellion against the one who gave them to us? Why does God allow it all to go on? You see, that's the difficult question. And Paul says, well, what if God was up to something? What if God was patiently, patiently enduring a world full of rebellion and sin for this one magnificent reason to show the glory of his grace to rebels and sinners he had determined to save? What if he was patient, verse 23, in order to the end of making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? You see, that would, that would change things. That, that would mean that the bottom line purpose of God in his dealing with men, the bottom line is because he wants to show mercy. He wants to show grace. That, that would mean that, you see, the deep mystery of the world is love, divine love. You see, you see, this will be the eternal shame of hell. The God that people bellyached against and complained against and grumbled against and reviled against, the God that they hated was a God of infinite love. Infinite love. So great love that he sent his only son into this wicked world that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love that was so vast 
that he sent his son to die, that, that, that the mercy that God desired to show would be purchased at the cost of the blood of his own son. And in hell you're going to stand there and realize the God I reviled was the God who loved, infinitely loved this world. I had no idea what I was talking about. There's a short phrase here I don't want you to miss because Paul presses this home. This is not just a doctrinal discussion for him. He presses it right into the lap of of his readers there in the church of Rome and to us and uses the words even us. What if God was was doing what he does in the world in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called. You see, friends, that means that if you're a Christian, that you are that person. You, you are a vessel of God's mercy. If you confess with your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead to be your justification, to be your righteousness. If, if you believe that Christ is right now seated at the right hand of God and one day he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead and when God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? Your answer is there's no reason whatsoever except you love me and gave Christ to me. If that's you this morning, then friend, you are a vessel of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. It means God created you to be a display of his mercy and a recipient of his mercy. God God had mercy on you before you were even born and he sealed that mercy to you when he put his son on the cross and he extended that mercy to you when he called you to faith in Jesus Christ and gave you the faith to trust in him. It's all mercy, compassion. To, To be a Christian is to be defined by the mercy of God. Isaiah 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself. He rises to show mercy to you. That's God's relation to you. His passion to display the glory of his mercy. And you're you're an instrument of that, a vessel of mercy. I love that song, it's a little older now, but by Phillips Craig, and, Phillips Craig and Dean, Mercy Came Running, you know that song? Mercy came running like a prisoner set free, past all my failures to the point of my need, that's mercy. When the sin that I carried was all I could see, and I could not reach mercy, mercy came running to me. If you're a Christian, that's your story. Mercy came running to you like the father of the prodigal son. Mercy came and sought you out and embraced you. And, and, and as a Christian, right, you're, we are extolled, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his what? His mercies. His mercies. Have you ever thought about the mercies of God to you? Some of you grew up in a Christian home. And you had parents who loved Jesus and they loved you and they prayed with you and they taught you the gospel. And you had no right to be there. You could have been born in Pakistan. You could have been born in any place in the world where there are billions of children today who don't have a home like that. That could have been you. But God had mercy on you. 
And God placed you in that home. And you received the gospel from your youth and you were given the grace to believe it and to trust Jesus. And it's all, all mercy. Some of you were saved later in life and you were just going your own way, living your life, doing your thing. And God mercifully brought it all to a crashing halt one way or another and he opened your eyes to see that you were lost and that you could not save yourself. And God in his mercy gave you the spirit of Jesus Christ and in mercy someone shared the gospel of Christ with you. And you believed. And you were saved. You were raised from the dead by the mercy of God. And it's been mercy every step of the way. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. And it's mercy, friends, that has kept you standing when your faith was weak. And your faith at times has been far more weak than you know. It's been mercy that kept you from falling into soul-destroying sin when you were more than willing to go there. It's mercy that has preserved your life. It's mercy that's kept you from falling. You are a vessel of mercy. You are a place where God will always and only pour mercy and compassion and kindness upon you all the days of your life. Do you realize what God has done for you? When God had every right to leave you in your lost estate, he had had mercy on you. And he continues to have mercy on you and he promises mercy towards you forever and ever and ever until you're home. If you're a Christian, you're a vessel of mercy and you've been prepared beforehand for glory. That's a stunning statement. It means God's ultimate purpose for your life is to bring you into his presence, into his glory. You will share his glory. You'll wear it in a sense. It'll be wrapped up in it. God has mercy on you to that end so that you will one day know and taste and experience forever the indescribable manifold glory of God as you live with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth. That's your destiny. Your life now is mercy, your life there is glory. And all because of God. So friends, my question for you this morning then is just simply this. Are you a Christian? Are you actually in truth a Christian? Have you confessed your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted that that God placed his son on the cross for that very sin for you and that that Jesus' obedience now is your righteousness? Are you a Christian? If you are not, friend, you can be. That's the beauty of the gospel. No one who wants to be saved will be condemned. I've said this before, but we need to say it. In the context of election and reprobation, You'll not find a single person in all the Bible or all the history of the world who went to the gates of heaven and said, I want to come in, and God said, I'm sorry, you're not elect. It doesn't happen. If you are willing to confess your sin and call on the name of the Lord, what does the Bible promise? You shall be saved. You shall be saved. And that promise has never failed a single person. And so if, you, if you're not a Christian today, why wouldn't you want to be? What glory God offers to you, and he calls you to come and believe and be saved. Maybe you are a Christian. You're going through a really rough time. 
You're wondering what God is doing in your life, and, and, and you don't complain out loud, but there's cynicism in your heart. There's, there's dissatisfaction with God. You can't say that you, you love Him deeply. You're trusting in Him implicitly. You're not taking peace or comfort in, in God's ways in your, in your life right now. And God wants you to know, Christian, you are a vessel of mercy. Every day, you're a vessel of mercy. God knows what He's about. He knows what He's about. He's God. Could you humble yourself and, and, and say, though I don't get it and I don't understand, I'm willing to trust me, the ant, right? I'm willing to trust that God knows what he's about, the God who sent his son to love me and, and to rescue me, and I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to believe that I'm a vessel of mercy today, even though there's, there's deep loss and there's, there's, there's anxiety and there's pain, whatever it might be. I'm willing to trust what the Bible says. God's word says, I'm a trophy of his mercy, someone prepared beforehand for glory. And let that confidence, let that knowledge be your peace as you move into the hard places of life. Friend, whatever your, your station or life today is, whatever your circumstance, let's resolve to embrace this truth and put all grumbling and complaining aside. We cannot be the people who grumble against God. Not when we've been purchased with the blood of his son. We have no right. God has reasons for what he does, and the deep mystery of the world and the, mystery, the deep mystery of our life is infinite love. Let's believe it. Let's trust it. Let's give him thanks for it. Amen. Oh, Father, we are just stepping into such deep things here, and it's beyond our ability to comprehend, and yet we, we thank you and we trust you. You are God. And we are here today because you have shown mercy to us. And that mercy will never fail. That compassion will never end. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us the faith today to to embrace this truth, to rejoice in the infinite love of God, to put away all grumbling and complaining, to move into every day with joy and gladness because we are vessels of mercy prepared for glory. And I just pray, Lord, that that, that identity would change how we see our circumstances and how we live our life, how we talk to you in prayer. Jesus, I thank you for these deep, profound things, and I thank you for your spirit to help us understand them. I pray that spirit now would help us to rejoice in them. And Lord, if someone is here today who has never come to Christ in a saving way, oh Jesus, I thank you that the gospel is certain and true and the promise stands, and that you would draw that person to call in the name of the Lord and be saved. We'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to conclude with a hymn that we don't sing often. In fact, it's been quite a while, but I'd like you to pay attention. The tune will be familiar to you, but pay attention to the words. Church of God, elect and glorious. Let's stand together and sing.
Uh, just a note, I'm going to be uh, tonight preaching at Grace Fellowship. Mike Scout will be here, so look forward uh, to that as our dear brother brings the Word of God here tonight. Uh, this Monday, tomorrow morning, Joanne and I are leaving down to Gainesville, Florida, where I'm teaching a class on preaching for ministers in the OPC, so I would ask you to pray for me for that. And then the next week, we're going to be taking a vacation. So, um, so it's going to be two weeks before I'll be back, but we will keep you in our prayers and ask you to keep us in yours as well. And as we each go in the path that God has called us, receive his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.